Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're back after a break for the summer. We're recording this one on Friday, August 20th, 2021. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? Great, how are you, Tony? Doing very well. So obviously a lot has happened since we last recorded a podcast. And I don't think we are gonna be able to cover everything that's happened today, but we have more podcasts coming down the line that we can talk about some of these issues for. But I thought maybe we could start off talking today about the economic impact of the Delta strain of COVID. So last time we recorded a podcast, I think the end of the spring semester, things were looking really good in the fight against the pandemic. Infections were falling, more people getting vaccinated, hospitalizations were down, businesses were starting to reopen. And then around about July, as this Delta variant began to spread, and of course, it's much more contagious, apparently, than the original, we began to see some things going in the opposite direction, particularly in some states, infections really soared, hospitalizations have gone up, and we saw that consumers may be pulling back a little bit. There was a decline in retail sales in July. The Wall Street Journal had some data a couple of days ago that um, showed that foot traffic in Retail stores had declined quite a bit beginning in July, and we've we've seen certain restrictions coming back on of some localities um, mandating that people wear masks inside. I think some cities, notably New York and San Francisco, are even saying you need to you need to be vaccinated before you can come into a restaurant and so on. And we've seen some of the supply disruptions come back. Uh, Toyota kind of surprised people a couple of days ago, saying that because some of their suppliers in Asia were shut down or struggling with COVID, they were going to have to cut back on production of cars, both in Japan and the United States. So the question then is, is this a, a, a blip? Are we going to be through it maybe in a couple of months? or? Should we be worried that this might significantly derail the economic recovery? Well, it's a huge question, Tony, and it's on all of our minds as classroom instructors as well. We're about to begin uh, the fall term, uh, at least uh, where I teach, every student and faculty member has to be vaccinated, but it's still going to be, I think, touch and go for the fall term. We'll have to, we'll have to see. I did produce my vaccine card in a restaurant last night to be able to eat. So yes, they are checking. To, to your question, I think there's three parts to it. Uh, one, and we talked about this on previous podcasts, is about the mix between goods and services and consumption and the fact that the pandemic affects those very differently. So goods bounce back much more rapidly in the pandemic than services. And one issue with retail sales may be that people have bought a lot of goods, they were pivoting to services. But now with Delta, there's a concern about whether that pivot uh, is going to take place. That's tied up, I think, with the second point I wanted to make about work. So part of this is going to be uh, what is the return to work uh, and the inequality that we've discussed in who can and cannot work at home. 
And so if the Delta variant delays return to office, that has ripple effects through local uh, economies, whether you're a big city with a central business district or uh, a more modest uh, city or area, uh, it's going to be a big deal. So services and inequality. And the third thing is really uncertain. The fact that people had settled on the virus basically uh, going away or fading away, uh, this now injects a lot of uncertainty into economic decisions. So if I'm a business person, do I necessarily want to hire as rapidly as I had? Do I want to make that investment? If I'm a household, how do I think about either my uh, decisions now or the way I allocate my savings? All of these things are affected. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not a doctor or sometimes I tell my kids, you, you know, I am a doctor. Uh, an MD. Right? Not a real doctor, as my yeah. wife would say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not, a, I'm not an MD, but serious people that I know like that, like Scott Gottlieb, do believe this will work itself out. It will be painful. And that pain was exacerbated by you know, the number of people not getting vaccinated. So I think it, it will be this services, goods mix issue, work from home, and uncertainty that dominates the Delta discussion. I, I got to believe it's going to come up in our classrooms all fall. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I was thinking the other day that um, there's also a certain psychological psychological component. I mean, some of it is clearly physical. If you if you get um, Delta, then and you become very ill, it's it's physical. It's not psychological. But I was thinking um, uh, a few years ago we had a severe flu outbreak, at least in the Lehigh Valley, probably, I think it was maybe countrywide. And I remember giving a midterm exam and it was big class. It was completely quiet in the room as it is when students are taking an exam. And I remember there was just um, a cacophony, great word, of sneezing, coughing, people blowing their noses and whatever. And thinking back on that, it never occurred to me at the time gee, you know, I, I should have canceled this class. And I don't think it occurred to the students. I mean, students who were, who were so well that they didn't feel they could come to class, they were excused and took a makeup. But the students really were not taken aback by the fact that, yeah, there was flu going through the campus. Nobody came up to me and said, Professor O'Brien, how can you make us take this exam when there's flu on campus? And even if, you know, the anonymous teaching evaluation at the end of the semester, nobody wrote down, oh, you know, I still resent having to, having to take that exam. And I don't think any of my colleagues canceled their classes. But I'm wondering whether, um, and you know, it depends on how you think of the, the, the Delta variant. I mean, my understanding is I'm not a, a doctor or an epidemiologist, but if you're vaccinated, you're kind of running about the risk that you would with the flu. You, you, you might get it, so-called breakthrough infection, but it'd probably be fairly mild. And as, as at Columbia at Lehigh, all the students, all the faculty and staff have to be vaccinated. Uh, we're supposed to wear masks inside, but we're essentially doing sort of normal school in the sense that the first year students are doubled up in their dorms, you know, five, six, eight students using the same bathroom. We're going to be having students shoulder to shoulder in class. And it made me wonder how will we take it if there is a uh, an upsurge on campus, and not just us, but you know some companies are bringing workers back. Some of the big office buildings are beginning to fill up again. 
factory floors are, are full and whatever, will we react as we used to to the flu and say, okay, this is unfortunate, but we're kind of going to power through this? Or with the backdrop of 600,000 people having died, are we going to decide, well, you know, we're going to have to pull back and move online and, you know, go back into a more uh, careful remote mode, which if that were to happen, then I think maybe we, we do see more damage to the economy. Yeah, I think it's a big question, Tony, and that's what I meant by the uncertainty point that basically, you know, businesses have been planning on bringing workers back, expecting more foot traffic if it's retail or office work. And now they're just not sure. And in most campuses, you know, what are we going to do when a few students become ill? You know, I marvel at where are students even going to eat on campus? We're offering grab-and-go food, but there's no chairs in cafeterias. So I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> some, some wise person will figure this out. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be something that, that we're going to find out one way or the other, I guess. There's a related point that I thought we could talk about. It's been getting a lot of discussion, and that is inflation. We did post uh, a, a longish post to the blog a few days ago, giving some of the background on what's been happening with inflation. And uh, if listeners haven't had a chance to look at that, they might want to stop by HubbardO'BrienEconomics.com and, and take a look. And what we mentioned there is that if you look at inflation as measured by the CPI, it's been above 5% this summer for the first time since the summer of 2008, which is a long time ago. In fact, if you're an 18-year-old first-year college student this fall, you were in kindergarten. The last time inflation was that high. It's somewhat lower if you use the um, the Fed's preferred measures, as we talk about in the in the textbook, um, the Fed, rather than looking at the CPI, prefers to look at the price index for personal consumption expenditures, which is basically all the goods and services that are in the consumption component of GDP. And it prefers that measure because it has more goods and services, has the prices of more goods and services. And of course, the the CPI tracks just the prices of the goods and services that are in the so-called market basket. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics sends out people to, to interview families, basically urban households of four, on what they've been uh, buying and then tracks the prices of those. So the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, is broader. And so the Fed thinks it gives it a better feel for what's happened to inflation. Then it also pulls out food and energy prices. So gasoline is kicked out and fresh vegetables and whatever. The thinking as we talk about is that those prices are more volatile. And so they might be going up or going down for reasons not connected to what's happening to the overall economy. They, they might be affected by the overall economy, but they can be affected by you know, by uh, things that are specific to those markets, like OPEC deciding to pump more or less oil will affect oil prices and gasoline prices. So they kick those out. And if you take that measure, inflation has not gone up as much. It's running more like three and a half percent rather than five and a half percent. But I guess the big question that is debated and that members of Congress ask Fed Chair Jerome Powell every time he appears before them 
is should we see this upsurge in inflation as temporary? Is it something that's going to pass quickly? Or should we be worried that we're, we're moving permanently above the Fed's target inflation rate, which is 2%? Well, you know, it's a huge question in Washington, but it's also a big question for all of us, whether we're economists or business people or just people going about our lives making decisions. Inflation affects everyone. And you made the reference to age. You know, for many young people, inflation is just not something they've ever seen. I mean, it's just, it's in the, the deep past that only we uh, old folks uh, might, might know about. It, it calls to mind the two best words in the English language, supply and demand. <laughs> so basically, if you what the Fed story is, is really about supply disruptions that, you know, there are these supply chain issues. These are transitory. They will work their way through the economy. So inflation will remain elevated until they do, but uh, no problem, essential. That's the central view. Problem with that is, of course, we have been boosting up demand. Uh, the Fed itself, you know, if, if you're worried about supply disruptions, why are you boosting up demand? Why are we buying tens of billions of dollars a month in mortgage-backed securities when the housing market is on fire? So I think that there are some Fed officials that have started to say, well, wait a minute, we do need to think about our role in this. And of course, the government, likewise, through a very accommodative fiscal policy, which you could like or not, but it's certainly very accommodating. Uh, all of this has led to a higher demand. So this, then this gets to the question, okay, clearly inflation is elevated. Uh, will it stay so? A key thing for market participants and for all of us just as actual people is really expectations of inflation as much as actual inflation. The Fed is right. that so far, those seem relatively grounded but you are starting to see in the economy wage price pressures and spirals, and that can become self-fulfilling and changing expectations. So I think the Fed is a bit playing with fire on this. It, it comes at an interesting time because this past weekend was the 50th anniversary of uh, the U.S. exit from Bretton Woods. Mm. And that was a period as well that introduced a lot of monetary uh, uncertainty, you know, what what is going to be the uh, value of the dollar and obviously inflation pressures as well. So we are there again. So if I knew the answer, of course, I'd be a billionaire hedge fund manager and, and not an <laughs> economics professor, but I do know it's gonna to come to supply and demand and expectations. And the problem is most people commenting on this are talking about one of the three, maybe even two, but you gotta do all three at the same time, I think. What do you think? Yeah, that's a good point. I think that the, the current debate, which you outlined very well, fits in with what we discuss in the textbook. It's chapter 27 in the combined version and chapter 17 in the, the macroeconomic split, where we do talk about the fact that you can think of inflation as being equal to expected inflation. And that's important because people make their plans on the basis of what they think is gonna happen with inflation. So, you know, if you are working for a firm and you uh, are told by your manager, we're gonna increase your salary 5% next year. If you think inflation is 2%, then you're quite happy. You think, well, gee, I can buy more stuff because the amount they're paying me is going up less than the prices I have to pay. 
But if you think inflation is, say, 10%, which seems extraordinarily high now, but we experienced back in the 70s and early 80s, then you think, well, you know, I've, that's a problem because my wage is going up, my salary is going up 5%, price is going up 10%, I can't buy as much. So we expect that, um, that people are going to act on the basis of what they expect inflation to be. And then, as you pointed out, there were also supply side factors. And beginning in the 70s, we mostly thought of the most important of those being oil prices, that because increasing the price of oil can reverberate through the economy, they can temporarily cause inflation to rise or if oil prices collapse, they can cause inflation to be lower than people expected. And then also what's happening to um, the labor market or the Phelps curve stories we talk about in the book where if the labor market is really hot, unemployment is really falling, then, and it gets very low, then it's possible that firms have to um, raise wages to retain workers or try and lure them away from their competitors. And since for many firms, their largest cost is the wage bill that they pay to their workers, if wages are going up rapidly, then they have to, um, they have to at least try to pass that through into higher prices. So the real question is, as you say, is are we seeing some transitory problems so that you know, we've had these supply disruptions? I talked a minute ago about you know, the recurring one with semiconductors that uh, are in short supply. So we've seen problems in producing automobiles. So automobile prices have increased and used car prices have just shot through the roof as people were priced out of the, or couldn't find a new automobile and then began um, uh, looking in the used car market and that may be transitory. And then we know that um, Many firms, restaurants, and so on have had trouble attracting enough people to, to manage to uh, be at full staff. And so they've had to rapidly increase wages. And as you say, Fed Chair Powell, uh, using the term anchored, said, well, he thinks, and his reading of financial markets indicates to him that expectations of inflation are still well anchored around that 2% target that the Fed has. But I think we talked before about the fact that there are some prominent economists who are nervous, at least, the ones who maybe have, have made their nervousness most vocal would be uh, Olivier Blanchard, the longtime professor of economics at MIT, who's now at the, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and Lawrence Summers, longtime professor of economics at Harvard, who was treasury secretary in the Clinton administration. And they both have said that there's a chance, they're not really predicting this, but they're afraid that we might be having a replay of the late 60s and early 70s. And we, we talk in the book about the fact that in that period, people are expecting very low inflation. It's the mid 60s, you've experienced them with nothing but 1% or so for quite a long time. And then inflation begins to creep up three, four percent, and you, meaning a firm or uh, a worker or uh, someone who's lending money or practically anybody else, start to think, "Whoa, you know, it's it's been above one percent long enough. I ought to start expecting three or four percent," and that then becomes the new baseline. And one of the problems with that is that if inflationary pressures continue; it could go above that. 
And in the 70s, it, for various reasons, it kept rising. And one of the lessons of that period, remember Janet Yellen at one point when she was Fed chair, called it one of the hard lessons that the economy has taught the Fed is that once inflation accelerates, it's tough to manage to bring it back down again. So I think that's one of the interesting factors that we're going to see. Um, in a sense, I think you mentioned that the Fed seems to be a bit nervous because if you look at their own forecast of inflation, inflation is running higher than they had been forecasting. And you pointed out that uh, monetary policy has been expansionary, not just because the federal funds rate has been kept at zero, but they've been doing a lot of what we used to call quantitative easing. That term seems to have uh, gone by the boards because it's almost become you know routine so maybe we don't need a special name for it but they've been buying up a lot of mortgage-backed securities issued by so-called government-sponsored enterprises Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and a lot of long-term treasury securities and as you point out the the rationale for that is that we want to or they want to keep long-term interest rates low to spur demand and for mortgage-backed securities, it's housing demand, but the housing market seems to be on fire. And from all that you read, housing prices are increasing rapidly. So there's a real question of do we want to do we want to continue doing that? And some members of the Federal Open Market Committee have been interviewed and have said, well, you know, maybe we should already this year begin at least cutting back the amount. And at first, the the stock market didn't like that, thought that the that that might be bad news for the economy, and, and we had a uh, a dip in the market. But the stock market seems able to shrug off practically everything these days, and has come has come back the last few days. So that it's going to be something very interesting to watch, and I think that it fits pretty well. The factors involved fit pretty well in the story that we tell in the textbook, and that um, students and instructors can can frame in those terms. Yeah, I think it's a make inflation great again moment for all of us <laughs> as, as instructors because, you know, students, while we, we all teach the models and approaches, when you use words like the 60s and 70s that are in your memory and mine, they're just not, of course, in right. the students. And so I, I think this really makes the topic front and center. So I wouldn't be surprised if we all got, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of questions from students this fall on what's this mean for me? Yeah, absolutely. Great, Glenn. Well, that was an interesting discussion. We've still got a number of things that have happened uh, in the last couple of months and that may be happening soon that we can continue to talk about in subsequent podcasts. So let me just remind listeners that our podcast is available on iTunes. If you came to Hubbard and O'Brien economics.com and, and are listening to it there, you can also subscribe on iTunes if you'd like. It gets part of your podcast feed. And if you're so moved, you can leave us a review. You could also keep checking our blog at hubbardobrieneconomics.com. Hubbard O'Brien Economics, all one word.com, where we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog and you'll get email alerts about new posts. In fact, the emails contain more or less the whole post. So thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien economics podcast. We'll see you next time.